Hey everybody, welcome to Spin is a Four Letter Word, the Maroon PR podcast, all things PR, media, etc., etc. Uh, with me, as always, is Matt Williams. Hi, Matt. Good to be here, John. And our silent but deadly producer, Brittany Everett, waving wildly from the sidelines. Um, real treat today, Matt. Um, Kevin Seifert, the national NFL reporter for ESPN, is going to join us. Kevin uh, and I go way back to the mid-'90s when he covered the Orioles for the Washington Times, but he's been covering the NFL for two decades now and does a great job of it. Yeah, and I think – you know, everybody's going to get their NFL fix today. You know, there's some, you know, it's nice for us to have a, a topic to talk about that, you know, is beyond football in this case, and we will. And I think, uh, you know, Kevin's going to have great insight in that, but it's also going to be a good chance for people to, to hear, to get their NFL fix and to, to, to learn more about it. Yeah, I agree. I think we, you know, we, we stayed with them for about 25 minutes. It could have been 45 minutes easily. We didn't get a chance to really touch on the officiating or the overtime rules and all that stuff. But we get into the Rooney rule controversy. We get into the playoffs and the trajectory of the NFL. We talk a lot about public relations in the NFL and and uh, how that's kind of evolved and, and where it stands now. We got into some uh, fantasy football and gaming and all that stuff. And he, we even touch on the New York Jets, as everybody knows. I'm a big <laughs> fan. So without further ado, Kevin Seifert, national NFL reporter for ESPN, is with us. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us on Spin is a Four-Letter Word. Thanks for having me, John. Good to hear from you. Yeah, great to hear from you. Um, lot to cover. Uh, don't want to take up too much of Kev's time, but to give people a little bit of background, Kevin and I go way back um, in the mid-'90s. He was covering the Baltimore Orioles for the Washington Times. And... Uh, he was the beat writer. I was the PR guy and always one of the best, not best, just best reporters, but also one of the best people. And um, he informed me right before we hopped on the phone that he's now been out in the Midwest in the, in Minnesota um, for 22 years. Is that right, Kev? Yep. Yep. It'll be 23 in September. Amazing. Amazing. Time does fly. A uh, lot to cover, but I know right in your backyard, there was a lot of rumors um uh, in the last 24 hours that uh, Coach Harbaugh was going to be leaving Michigan, the other Coach Harbaugh, and coming to the Vikings. Yeah. And uh, he informed um, Michigan he's coming back. Yeah, and I know uh, that definitely disappointed a lot of Vikings fans who uh, were thinking that he would be the, the coach that could bring them uh, over the top. Um, but I always thought it was a very strange pairing. Um, there's really no connection that he has uh, to anybody here, except he worked with the new general manager right. and the new general manager was a very low level um, staffer with the 49ers. And so, uh, you know, I, I know Harbaugh want, wanted to come back to the NFL and the Vikings, you know, had to do their due diligence to, um, to interview him if he was going, willing to do that. But I don't think that they even made him an offer. I don't think that they, at the end of the interview thought that that was the coach they wanted. They, um, have sort of restructured their front office in a sort of a new age type collaborative um, uh, cooperation, lower the temperature, lower the ego kind of way. And I don't think that they quite frankly saw uh, Jim Harbaugh as a fit for that. And it sounds strange and, you know, and it probably sounds like I'm making an excuse for a team not hiring a great coach, which is what he is, but I don't think he was a fit for what they're trying to build. Yeah, and I think, look, he's also, like to face it, he's kind of an acquired taste in terms of personality and <laughs> yeah. all. So it's an interesting uh, guy for sure and great success this past year at Michigan. Going back, Kev, before we jump into more NFL stuff, you had mentioned earlier about like different teams and staffs and people you work with at the different team level. 
you know, having worked with teams as, as did Matt for all the years, um, how have you seen things evolve with, with regard to kind of dealing with public relations folks at the club level? I mean, you know, back in the day when we were there, you know, it was still kind of press releases and phone calls and now it's kind of social media and digitally dominated and, and content related and all that good stuff. I mean, is it still from your perspective, from a reporter's perspective, is it still relatively the same when you're dealing with team public relations folks? Um, it's been pretty much the same for me. I have the, uh, the luxury of being sort of a national reporter, so I'm not bugging, you know, PR people every day, same PR people every day for, for information. And they're not around me every day. I'm not grading on them. They're not grading on me. So I, have good relationships with most of the the PR people around the NFL, but it's probably due to the relative lack of interaction that we have uh, too. And you guys know that, and that's just kind of the how how it works. The one thing that I think has sort of fundamentally changed is that I think PR people at teams are now either under pressure or have just you know or are on board with directing news and access and features to in-house. Um, yep. Uh, content uh, builders, you know, whether it's people on the team's social media staff or people on the team's website, uh, reporters that have been hired to cover the team for um, the website and and, and for uh, par- uh, partners, you know, radio or TV partners. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I would probably do the same thing if I worked for a team. You know, if you have news to deliver, you might as well uh, have the first uh, crack at it, uh, give the first crack at it to your own people. Um, if you have access that is desired by everyone why not you know maximize it and and get it on your own platforms first and so i think that's sort of a new relatively new thing that pr directors are having a balance Mm -hmm. because they still have the independent reporters that they need to uh, work with and are probably going to feel slighted or feel competitive at least to try to also match or exceed the access that's being given to team uh, reporters and team sites, but it's just a new dynamic. And again, I don't blame teams or, or the PR people who are really gung ho about doing that. Um, but it just adds a different level to the relationship where, um, I know almost every PR person, uh, that I've worked with wanted to be exceedingly fair to all the beat writers, uh, reporters, TV, uh, reporters, radio people, columnists who were around the team every day. Mm -hmm. And, this dynamic kind of just fundamentally changes that. So it's a little bit of a new layer that I think I see PR um, people on the PR side having to deal with. And it's not an unmanageable situation, but it's certainly new. It is interesting, right? Cause there is pressure and they still want the relationships with their, especially with their local folks and their local guys. Yeah. And you don't want to piss them off by breaking news constantly on your Instagram page with your, you know, in-house reporter. So that that's a really interesting observation. I want to ask you about kind of along those same lines as the Brady retirement. Um, it looked like Adam had it, and then um, you know, then Tom quickly came out, and his dad came out, and he had the whole family saying he hasn't made up his mind, but really looks like he made up his mind. But there was definitely some sort of uh, um, fumble of the way they wanted it to come out, and. Good, you know what? Hats off, like to me, good old fashioned reporting prevailed there, at least from an outside perspective. I don't know if you have any opinion on that. No, that's what it looked like to me, too. And, you know, it was to me, it was kind of a rare uh, case of, of Tom Brady not being able to control his message yeah. and not, you know, he's got a lot of great people around him. Um, they've built, you know, whether it's with his companies or just people that he employs and, um, 
you know, it's kind of the old fashioned, the more people you tell, the better chance it is that it gets out. And so he obviously, you know, hadn't made, you know, he, he'd obviously probably didn't make the decision between Saturday when it was initially reported and Tuesday, I think when he, uh, he put out his Instagram statement, but, um, you know, he wanted to do it on his terms, but too many people found out about it. And we have great reporters and, and Adam Schefter and Jeff Darlington, and they did it the right way and, and found, and, and, and found out information that was accurate and, and reported it. Um, and that's kind of, you know, that's the, the, the bastion of, of independent journalism. You know, we're, we're not on the timetable of the people who were the newsmakers um, if the news is already out. That's really interesting. Kevin, Matt here. Uh, a quick, yeah. uh, just a, a quick question on, on how it works at a shop like yours. I mean, there are so many reporters or you know, and, and certainly in the NFL case, so many reporters following the same beat, right? So how much are you guys competing within, you know, your company? And do you, do you constantly share information? How does that, how does that work? Uh, you, you don't have to be specific about it, but as far as, no. you know, how you, how you, how you handle that when you've got, you know, six or seven national guys working on, working yeah. on these stories. I mean, there's definitely some uh, case occasions when, you know, people are sort of milling over the same ground and you're not necessarily competing, but you might find out that three different people from ESPN call the same agent about the same player. And um, I personally have sort of taken that opportunity to, to look in other places for news and information and not feel like I need to sort of climb over the, the mass of people who are looking for sort of the traditional news and and. Um, but one thing I will say is that like, you know, even though it's a big shop, like Adam Schefter has built relationships with a lot of us and where you might, if you were from the out, just joining the company and just kind of not sure you might feel intimidated or not want to bother him when you hear something or when you need help with a story. Um, when I have done that or when other people have done that, he's exceedingly helpful and exceedingly humble about it and doesn't want his name on it. Doesn't, you know, he's, um, and so, like, I think sometimes we can look at it and think it's this big, monstrous uh, news gathering organization. But a lot of the same principles that would work in a smaller newspaper or, or at a smaller website um, are still in play if you just kind of um, take the step to take advantage of it. Sure. Yeah. Hey, Kev, shifting gears a little bit to uh, the latest big NFL story is um, the Brian Flores uh, class action um lawsuit against the NFL, the Rooney rule, the um, Hugh Jackson being involved and coming out strong lately. Um, you know, look, I, I'd love to get your perspective. I know you wrote about it yesterday. Um, you know, from my perspective, when you look at the Rooney rule, in a lot of ways, it's, it feels like it was flawed from the jump and that the spirit behind it might have been right. But when you ask people to check a box rather than alter behavior and I don't have any real answers you get people checking yeah. a box right and so now it seems to come to a head he's a pretty well respected young guy who's putting his career on the line to take this take this up take the stand up and now Hugh Jackson came out so you know what's your take on all of this and what do you think what do you think the NFL's ultimate response is going to be especially with owners like Jerry Jones now kind of coming out saying that things need to change yeah I think I mean, my own perspective is that the Rooney Rule itself has been effective because the Rooney Rule was not a hiring policy. It, it's, it was always just an interview policy. It was the, the, the end game of the Rooney Rule 
was to get people in front of the decision, get a diverse group of candidates in front of the decision makers. Got it. Um, and and that, the way I understood it and that part has worked. I mean, I think even if it's been forced and required and as Brian Flores has pointed out, not always taken seriously, in some cases outright flouted, um, it has at least done that much. And, you know, I'm sure there are some hires that have been made, you know, especially on the um, in the front offices. It's been more effective there, I think, when you look at general managers and that sort of thing. Um, but at least some people have been hired who wouldn't otherwise even have been in front of of, um, of decision makers. Um, the real issue is that you can't create a policy for hiring. You can create a policy for um uh, for interviews, but the owners are the ones who run the league and make the decisions and vote on policy, and they'll never vote um, on a policy that requires them to hire diverse people. Um, and I don't even know if that's a practical policy that to pull to do anyway, because you can't, you know, you, then you're getting into ratios and all that sort of thing. And so, you know, what the Brian Flores um, lawsuit basically is trying to do is create a court-ordered uh, mandate to change hearts and minds, you know, and to say like what you're doing, you know, it's great that you're interviewing people, but what you're doing by continually passing over um, and not considering uh, black candidates who have been fired or making quick decisions on firing black candidates, what you're doing is just illegal. You know, mm -hmm. it's, is what the forest uh, lawsuit is alleging. You know, you, you can't, uh, you know, create a separate set of decision-making for white people and black people. And so that's what, you know, I, the people I talk to who are sort of help build this, this lawsuit um, are saying like, this is the last case, last gasp, you know, you know, worst case scenario that you're having to ask a court to, require owners to to think differently when they make hires and so you know the only real solution is a long-term changing of hearts and minds mm -hmm. um on the one hand and the other hand is you know maybe a little bit more in a practical sense is somehow convincing these owners that diverse hiring um is not a box checking thing but in fact or at least you know it's a it's a way to to win more games. You know, if you're right. if you're only going to pick the best white coach, you're going to miss some better candidates. Uh, and the same would be if you're only going to pick the best black coach, you you could miss some of the better candidates. If your desire is to win games and hire the very best people, you need to you know it, it's in your best interest. You know, forget what you feel about race. You know, it's in your best interest to um, hire the hire the best candidate. And the only way you can find the best candidates is by you know interviewing diverse groups, but also uh, working to to sort of break through the the walls that prevent some of these owners from considering some of these black candidates as the best candidate. And so you can spend a long term. It's a little bit rambling in this case, but you can you can spend the long term trying to change hearts and minds, and that needs to be done. But on the shorter on the shorter um, term, you can follow a you know a, a, the idea that this is in your best interest on the field as well well i mean the the irony of the whole thing to me is that it's common sense right i mean like yeah I, you know who cares what race the best coach is like you hire the best coach because you're the bottom line is you own this team you're pouring millions into it you're making 
billions off of it because you want to win. And the more you win, the right. better it is for everybody. So it's just, it's just ironic that um, I guess when you, sometimes I'm flabbergasted that this is still a thing, but it's still a thing, you know? Um, hey, we're talking to Kevin Seifert. He is the national NFL reporter for ESPN. He, give him a follow at Twitter. He's awesome on Twitter at Seifert ESPN. Matt. Yeah. I just want to follow back up on, on that too. I guess another, Love to get your take on this, Kevin. Another short-term, you know, result of this lawsuit possibly might be finding the ways to catch these guys who are simply flaunting the rule. Um, you know, the the I know this is all still hearsay yet, but the Belichick phone call and that kind of thing is, you know, if these guys aren't taking it seriously, I guess in the short term there is a way to perhaps, you know, come down on these guys for just outright flaunting the rule, right? In this case, yes, because you're like that, you know, you're referring to the, the text messages from yeah. Bill Belichick, right. who seemed to know that Brian Dayball was going to be the Giants coach before Brian Flores had even uh, interviewed. And that in itself would be a violation of, I would think, of the Rooney rule, which is that you have to, you know, you have to genuinely and in good faith uh, interview a diverse group of candidates before making a decision. And so, you know, I, I think they probably, if they want to, have the capacity to to address that, um, at least investigate it. You know, I always get worried when the NFL starts investigating something because sometimes they, it actually makes the situation worse um, rather than better. If you look at some of the past investigations um, over the past few years, but. I, I, I think that what you're saying is actually within their capacity now. Like, I don't even think they need to change a policy yeah. or add to the Rooney rule to address if, you know, there had been a situation, I think, with the Raiders um, a few years ago before the John Gruden hire, I believe, where they had clearly flouted it um, and uh, they just didn't have a paper trail. And so in this case, there's a paper trail and there's a, timestamp on that text message and so i will be interested to see um you know the nfl said very quickly that there's no merits in these allegations but what they were really saying is in their minds there's no there were no laws broken and we will find out whether that's the case but i don't but they've already sort of started to investigate some of the other aspects of brian flores's allegations and i would expect them to also see if they can figure out if there's clear evidence that the Giants had, in fact, made a decision prior to interviewing Flores. Yeah, that was amazing text uh, text change for sure. I want I definitely want to move on to a couple other subjects and not keep you more than a few more minutes. Um, that said, I did want to say the Browns, from from a PR perspective, the Browns put a statement out after Hugh Jackson's uh, accusations that I thought was really good from a PR perspective. It was strong. Okay. It was super strong. And what I mean by that is they. Flat out denied it. Said that they were made up. Said and and I think I think you're just like kind of like your perspective on this and Matt's. You know, I think if you're gonna if you're gonna be accused of something, you either come out really really strongly and shout from the rooftops that this is not true, or you kind of are a little vague and lay a little low or you get more legalese-ish and they came out pretty strongly now that could backfire if it's not true mm -hmm. but i think mm -hmm. it was the best thing to do if you really believe that it's not true yeah yeah and um 
I thought it was interesting because when Hugh Jackson, you know, there had been a lot of sort of tweets and some statements from a, a person involved in his foundation on Twitter. Um, but when he actually went on ESPN and spoke about it, it sounded more like what he was saying was that he was paid his salary to coach a team that wasn't that was built to lose, you know, which is a lot, you know, which is what we knew at the time. Like we could all just, yeah, right. Was on yeah, the Browns suck. We, we get didn't, it. we don't yeah. need. Yeah. And they weren't, and they weren't trying to win and they were trying to pile up draft picks and we got the whole thing. Um, and, uh, and so what he was saying is, I, you know, which is much different than saying I was paid extra to, to lose games or I was paid a bonus to lose games. Um, really the, to me, like the best, the best contribution Hugh Jackson could make to this is what Brian Flores actually talked about last night on MSNBC, which is the idea of hiring black coaches to be bridge coaches yeah. for teams that are rebuilding and take all the lumps and, and have an impossible you know, path towards winning or getting to the playoffs. And then once the, the rebuilding process, you know, whether you've got it's your salary cap, you had to get fixed or you needed to, have a bunch of draft picks to replenish the roster. Once you get to that point, then they fire you um, and they hire a white coach who then sort of gets the, reaps the rewards of the work that was done prior to. Mm. And so I think he can make a contribution to this. Um, I don't, I mean, unless he produces receipts pretty quickly, I think the Browns statement is going to prove to be exactly right. Uh, he will, he, does not has not yet produced any evidence that he was paid a bonus to lose games, just that he was paid his salary to coach a team that had no chance to win a game, which is a lot different. You, you know, I, I just wonder sometimes, you know, taking a step back from all this, you know, you're going to cover this story, Kevin, and then you're going to have to turn around and cover that team, these teams. Mm -hmm. um, take us through what, <laughs> you know, you, you know, you're going to have to probably write some pretty tough stuff sometimes and that kind of thing. From a reporter's standpoint, um, coming back and dealing with the team, do you ever does the friction sometimes cause cause you problems in the long term? I just from a general PR guy's standpoint, you know, um, you know, when the next time they see you come in, if you break a story, for instance, um, and you, and you come in, do you feel the friction? Do you feel is it is it tough sometimes for you to to get cooperation down the road? Very rarely have I run into situations, at least in the current job, where something I wrote or something I said or tweet, even tweeted caused me you know, like like permanent damage. Like I guess the, what I always try to do and I think what a lot of people try to do is you can be critical but not be personal, you know. Right. Um, and so like when you start taking personal shots, you can expect people to be geared up you know, the next time you go to that place or, you know, try to get cooperation or whatever. But if you, if you just write something that you can, you know, that's critical, but is defensible and something you defended in the piece, you know, with facts, that's, that's your job. And I think the vast majority of people in the NFL and probably other sports realize that. And even if they're short, have a short term, um, decision to 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 not to be upset with you for a little bit it doesn't usually last and and, and there's the next battle to, to face so i i don't so much as keep in the back of my head like if i write this or say this they're not they're going to be mad at me i just keep in the back of my head like can i defend this is this is this you know um and was and when if they're doing something i think is wrong and i'm saying that do i also say when i think they're doing something right am i being fair right and so all those things that, you know, you could bring up if you were confronted, but I think most people absorb that or organically. And so I, long story short, I have not, 
you know, I, I don't run into too much yep. um, backlash. And I think, you know, because I try to follow those things. And also, I'm not really like a pure columnist either. So I'm not asked to write things that will mm-hmm. fire people up, per se, one way or the other. Um, so, no, I, yeah. I think for the most part, like, and I, and, and there's definitely people who are sensitive and you realize that. And, and, it's, and when they do get mad at you, you know, that's part of the job. <laughs> Very rare, very rarely does that lead to permanent relationship damage, in sure. my opinion. Sure. Yeah. Hey, Kev, on a very positive note, the last two weekends of NFL football may have been the two greatest weekends in history. Oh. I mean, it's insane. Um, yeah. And the, the numbers bear it out, right? I mean, the this is America's game. And, I, you know, I know baseball is a national pastime and all that good stuff, but you've been – covering the league long enough now where you've kind of seen this become obvious, I think to the universe that the NFL owns our hearts and souls and, uh, and, and, and yeah. does it what, you know, not just these playoff games, but what in general do you attribute that to? I mean, I love it. I'm addicted to it. I, I think it as are hundreds of millions of others, but like, what is it about the NFL model and the NFL that you think makes it so domineering in our in our society well i mean one thing that's changed that's that's happened even during the course of the time i've covered the nfl and this is i mean i i really think fantasy football has made a huge difference in terms of the amount of people who pay who are paying attention to the nfl on a weekly basis you know uh they're like whatever the the race the percentage of people that are watching NFL, like you would imagine that, you know, what is half 40% of the people are watching or paying attention because they have a fantasy team. And it sounds silly. And like, you know, I you know there's probably more like psychological or like, you know, animalistic reasons why people like football as well. But I honestly think that what they've done with fantasy football, even if it was just by accident, like, I don't know that they plan they sat around and thought if we can convince people to play fantasy football, like we'll grow our business you know, <laughs> dramatically, but, but it, it's, it's insane. And, and on, on, especially during the regular season when the fantasy um, is going on, like there's much more interest in the things that relate to fantasy than like, if I write, if I wrote a four paragraph story saying it doesn't look like Lamar Jackson's going to play this week, um, that would get, you know, huge proportion of greater traffic than if I wrote a 2000 word story that broke down how he learned how to be so effective at a scramble. (laughs) And like, you know, and, and there's probably other reasons for that too, but like, that's, you know, just tremendous interest in, in, you know, the day to day minutia of NFL news um, as a result of fantasy. And that creates this connection that I think people, I don't think people stop watching yeah. once fantasy season is over. And so I like, I'm sure there's other reasons, but I always come to that. Like, I just think that like uh, that, and it's a great TV product, you know, yep. I mean, there's nothing, there's no other sport that can capture your, you know, yeah. the interest of TV viewers than, than football. I agree. And building up your fantasy football thing, I mean, now you're getting legalized gambling passing in most states. you got sports books yeah. opening up here and in West Virginia and, you know, all around here as well. And I think that – I'm not much of a gambler personally, but I think that's opened up so much more attention to it. And you've seen these sports books and Barstool and all the – and ESPN, you've seen mm-hmm. all these things popping up. It's pretty special. It's pretty um, – 
amazing, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, if that if a finance, if, if it, you know, there's definitely some people who are watching with a financial uh, interest for sure, and and that's growing. And um, you know, I, I I as well, I'm not a huge gambler, so I can't say that I know like how much you know the average person is involved. But like, even if you're just putting five dollars on a game, you're probably going to be a lot more interested, yeah. and it's going to capture yeah. your attention a lot more than than if that didn't exist. Kevin, we've taken enough of your time. I'm going to let you go with one final question. And yes, yes anyone, who, anyone who knows me knows I am a diehard New York Jets fan, been since I was a little kid. It's been a rough go. Um, but I am of the opinion, and I want your expert, honest opinion here. I'm of the opinion this is an organization headed in a amazingly positive trajectory with most rookie snaps last year, young, awesome coach and GM and Robert Sala and Joe Douglas. And we have tons of cap space and we have tons of draft picks. And I'm kind of thinking we're next year's Bengals. I need to know your opinion. <laughs> Go. <laughs> so if you had asked me after like week 11, I would have said uh, you need to slow your roll a little bit. But I thought, I thought Zach Wilson looked a lot different, you know, that last month or so of the season. And not to put it all on him, but to put it all on him because, you know, nothing changed in Cincinnati except for for Joe Burrow all of a sudden took over as, as this great quarterback. And so that's the impact. You know, they obviously put some other, you know, pieces in place. Um, it helps to have Jamar Chase and, and that sort of thing. But, like, like that just shows you, like, the impact. Why everybody – some people say, why do you focus on quarterbacks so much? Why are you always running for it? Like, it is – there's no position in sports that can that can impact the trajectory of a team more than, than, than the quarterback. And so I don't disagree with you on Robert Sala, but I, I just think that, like, I – you know, I'm not saying that they're going to be the Bengals next year, uh, but I do think that, that – if you're a Jets fan, there's the last month or so of the season gave you genuine yeah. uh, reason to, to be optimistic and um, what that leads to. We'll see. Um, but uh, but that's that's the reason that I feel that way, because I thought he definitely took some steps. I, I did a story on Justin Fields real quickly towards mm-hmm. the end of the year. And Justin Fields and Zach Wilson were like right neck and neck in this QBR thing that we do at ESPN. That's mm-hmm. actually pretty, you know, I think a pretty good stat. And like toward the last month, Zach Wilson shot up that list uh, relatively and Justin Fields stayed at the very bottom. So like, I I really do think that he made some, took some strides and and gave people reason to think that he's got a shot to be be pretty good. Yeah. I really appreciate your feedback on that. It means a lot as a fan, (laughs) but you know, also like, Hey, look, they had a rookie, you know, Mike LaFleur is a rookie offensive coordinator kind of found his stride and Sala and all that. So it feels good, but Hey, listen, enough about my jets. Um, (laughs) Kevin Seifert, national NFL reporter for ESPN and an old friend. Kevin, really appreciate your time. Really appreciate giving us a few minutes. This was really fun and insightful. No problem. Enjoyed it. Thanks. Great to talk to you, Kevin. Thanks for listening to Spin is a Four-Letter Word. If you like what you hear today, please subscribe. Send us your feedback, too. We want this to be interesting for everybody. And give us a follow, at MaroonPR on Twitter and LinkedIn.